Engaging presentations on the most urgent problem of our day and what you can do about it. Now, the End Abortion Podcast by Priests for Life. Well, good evening, friends. Pro-Life leader Frank Pavone here, National Director of Priests for Life. Welcome to this episode of our Good Shepherd Seminars. Seminars in which we help to understand how we can assist our clergy better to proclaim the gospel of life. Great to have you with us, especially those of you who are priests, deacons, seminarians, pastors of all Christian denominations. Welcome. We are happy to have you with us. Uh, and uh, I invite you to uh, submit any questions or comments you may have uh, in the, the comments section of whatever platform you're watching us on. And you can always send us questions afterwards because many of you will be watching this not live, but what, what, when uh, it, it is re-aired or when you go back to the recording. And so ProLifeQuestions.com is a website we've set up uh, to take your questions on any day of the year uh, at any time, as much as you want, ProLifeQuestions.com, and our staff will, uh, will get back to you. So welcome. We're going to turn to the Lord in prayer. We're going to read a scripture from uh, one of Paul's letters. And uh, we're going to talk tonight about how to help our congregations think clearly about the faith. Because this is a time of confusion in the church, in the nation, in the world. And we, of course, as pastors proclaiming the, the word of God, are called to bring clarity rather than confusion. Clarity truth that builds unity because we rally around the word that is spoken the clear word of god that's what brings unity when there's confusion that's what creates division and so we're going to talk a little bit about this tonight and just some really heartfelt simple simple suggestions uh, for all of us to implement that i believe through my experience and and that of many others will will help us so let's begin in prayer and with the Word of God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father, we, we praise you and thank you for the ministry that you have given us. It is, Lord God, a ministry of the Word, and it is the Word that you have spoken. It is a Word, Lord God, that you have given us. We have not given it to ourselves. It is a Word that we seek to understand, but we do not master it. It masters us. Is it, a, it is a word that we study in our theology, but Lord God, theology is done on our knees because it begins with faith. Thank you, Lord God, for the word. Thank you for the confidence you give us in the word. Thank you for the clarity with which you allow us and empower us to proclaim that word. May we all be saved by that word. For that word, Lord God, is your Son, Jesus Christ, through whom we now pray. Amen. A reading from the letter of Paul to the Colossians. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, 
that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Brothers and sisters, let me begin by sharing with you something that I've heard constantly out on the road. You know, for 30 years now, I've been preaching the pro-life message full-time in parishes across the country and around the world. And very often people come up to me after the, the masses and uh, thank me for my message. And as much as they thank me for the content of the message, the compassion, the new things they learn, many people telling me they, they changed their mind uh, from being pro-abortion to pro-life as a result of the message, or having been already pro-life, it empowered them to communicate it better to others. I'm grateful for all of that, and it's all very encouraging. But so frequently, you know what I heard from the uh, parishioners? Thank you, Father Frank, so much for that message. And then they say, I could hear you. I could hear every word. Addressing the topic I chose for tonight, how to help our congregation think clearly about the faith. Well, first and foremost, they have to be able to hear us. They have to be able to hear us. So often, we are putting a lot of effort into preparing our message. We're thinking about the right words to use, the accurate words to use, the compassionate words to use, what words are going to be meaningful to the people, what's going to lead them along in understanding the faith. And meanwhile, we didn't check the sound system. Meanwhile, we didn't test the sound system. Meanwhile, we didn't get the, 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 right, the, the microphone in the right position. We didn't get up close enough to it. We didn't talk clearly enough, enunciate. They actually say to me, I could hear you as if it were something that so many of them rarely experienced. That I wanted to start off tonight by sharing with you. Let's make sure that the people can hear us. Then what it is, is it that they're going to hear? Friends, one of the things that is going to help us as proclaimers of the word make that word understood by the people is, first of all, that we never say anything that we ourselves don't understand. You know, the uh, traditional definition of preaching is that you're pre passing on to others what you yourself have contemplated. And we see the image in various parts of Scripture of uh, eating the Word. Uh, and what this means, of course, as Mary, Luke's Gospel tells us, constantly pondered that Word in her heart, is that it becomes part of us. If it's part of us, we're going to be proclaiming it more clearly than if it's not. We should never proclaim to somebody else something that we ourselves don't understand. We've got to completely own it and completely, with utter confidence in our own understanding of it, then begin to articulate it to others. But equally important is this. 
that we never lose confidence in the power of the Word. Once we understand the message that we want to proclaim to somebody else, we've also got to make sure that we have absolute confidence in the power of that Word. We didn't create the Word of God. We don't write the faith. We don't edit it. We can't improve upon it. It's a person, the person of Jesus Christ. The faith is not something we improve on. We also obviously know that we improve our understanding of it. We can improve our articulation of it. But we don't improve it. It's a message that once we've understood the point we want to communicate with, it's going to be communicated more clearly the more confidence we have in its power. Because if we don't have confidence in its power, first of all, we're going to be iffy, we're going to be holding back, we're going to be selectively choosing parts of the word that we want to convey. And the more we are trying to figure out all the different people that we don't want to offend, the more unclear the message is going to be. Because we're going to be holding back. First of all, the people have a right to the full message of the faith. If we look at some of the exhortations and other documents that Pope Paul VI, St. Paul VI, and St. John Paul II issued to the church about evangelization and about catechesis, it's very clear in their messages uh, that we are handing on to the faithful something to which the faithful already have a right. It's not a gift from us. It's not a favor from us. It's the Word of God, the food of God, along with the Eucharist. It's, it is the bread of life. And our people have a right to it in all its fullness, in all its rigor and vigor. We can't say, I'm going to give you this part of the Word of God. I'm going to hold back that other part. Paul VI said it is no small part of charity to give people the fullness of the truth of Christ. That truth is living. That truth sets us free. Yes, it challenges us and sometimes stings because it brings to light in us what we would rather not face and convicts us of our sins. But that is in no way a reason for not articulating it. So let's be confident in the power of the Word. Again, if we're not, we're going to be, first of all, trying to improve on it. And trying to improve on the Word of God is always going to make it less clear. We're going to try to use fancy words, and I'll get back to that in, uh, in a moment. We're going to uh, hem and haw and try to make excuses, and, 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 and that's what's going to confuse people. They're going to say, well, just tell me what you want me to hear. People don't want leaders, either in the church or in politics, beating around the bush. They want people to level with them. They want people to tell them the truth in other words that they can understand. The Word of God is living and active, as the letter to the Hebrews tells us. It's the Word of life. It saves life. Remember Isaiah 55. My Word will not return to me void. It shall accomplish the end for which I sent it. Just as earlier in that passage, he says, just as the rain and the snow come down, 
making the earth fertile and fruitful, giving food to him who eats, so shall my word be. It is a life-giving word. Don't lose confidence in the power of that word. The more confidence we have, the more clearly we will proclaim it, the more fully we will proclaim it, because proclaiming the word in all its fullness, the word helps interpret the word by not holding back any parts of it that we consider uh, politically incorrect or maybe our people can't take it or maybe it's just too countercultural or it's going to make them feel bad. Well, the more we're thinking that way, the more unclear it's going to be. The more we're thinking that, oh, well, we can't make anybody angry. I've even seen some memos coming out from dioceses, maybe some of you have received them, telling the priests not to say anything that's going to make people angry or be divisive. Christianity itself is divisive. The gospel got its primary preacher crucified, and not just Jesus. What, do you, what, do, what does it mean? I'm not even sure what it means that we're not supposed to make anybody angry. We're not supposed to make anybody feel bad. Well, then how can we preach anything about sin or repentance? The first word of the ministry of, of John the Baptist, of, of Jesus, of Peter at Pentecost, repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. Reform your lives. And it's going to upset some people. We know that. We're worshiping a God who was crucified. Or we may be afraid of the political implications. Maybe we're going to lose our tax-exempt status if we speak too clearly when election time comes and tell people to vote pro-life or inform people about who those are in our society that are attacking the faith, attacking life, attacking the church, attacking the gospel, attacking our freedom. If we're concerned that the church is going to lose its tax-exempt status because of the way we say something, we're not going to be clear. I'm going to be, again, beating around the bush, and people are going to look at us, and they're going to tilt their heads and say, what is he really trying to say? If, if he's trying to say what I think he's going to say, why doesn't he just say it? The IRS is not going to come knocking at our door to take away our tax-exempt status because of something we said about the right to life. Brothers and sisters, trust the people. They can take it. If we underestimate the people to whom we are proclaiming the word, our proclamation of the word, again, is going to be less clear than it would be if we have complete trust in their ability to receive that word. Because it's not just their strength to receive it that is in play, it's the Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit who inspired the Word in the first place. The same Holy Spirit, thanks to whom we have the faith, is speaking in the hearts and minds of the people who are hearing us explain it, people who are hearing us proclaim it. That Spirit is working in them to receive that Word to understand that word, 
to say yes to it and to live it out. And then in turn to proclaim it to others, as is also their responsibility as baptized members of the body of Christ. Trust their capacity. Don't underestimate them. Trust their capacity to hear the sharp message of the Word of God. We don't want to overcomplicate the faith. We don't want to dumb it down either. Give people the richness of the truth. But brothers and sisters, let's use language that they understand. We're used to studying theology. But when we get up and preach, we're not giving a theological class. We're proclaiming the gospel. We're announcing it. Evangelization is, of course, announcing the gospel. Announcing the gospel to people who may not have even heard it before, who may have never come to an understanding of it. Theology, on the other hand, is when we are using our mind to analyze the various truths of the faith that we've already accepted. But it, it, it presumes we've already accepted them. Evangelization doesn't presume we've already accepted them. I mean, it's, 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 it's announcing it. Catechesis is leading people along in an understanding of the faith that has been proclaimed to them. But let's not go into a theological class using all kinds of uh, complicated words or quoting all kinds of people that are people may have never heard of when we could get the message across in much simpler ways, in much simpler words. And I think we have a problem today of language. We're using too many complicated words with no good reason. Just as I would recommend avoiding intricate phil uh, philosophical and theological terminology, likewise avoid canonical and legal terminology. This is not helpful to the proclamation of the gospel. Uh, I know it's a canonical matter, but I, I noticed on the Instagram page of uh, one of the dioceses, they were explaining that a particular uh, parish was merging with another parish. Well, people understand those words that I just said. You're going to merge one parish with another. But there on the Instagram post, it said the following words, Decree on the extinctive union-amalgamation of Parish A with Parish B and the reduction of Church A to profane but not sordid use. What? Right? That's going to be the... the, the uh, you're talking about a social media... You're talking about Instagram. The audience is mostly teenagers anyway. And this language is, 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 is as opaque as uh, uh, this desk. I was at a gathering with Justice Clarence Thomas uh, on a number of occasions. And at one occasion in particular, he was uh, talking about the Constitution. Constitutional interpretation, which of course is a big uh, part of the role of, of, of justices. And he said, yeah, he said, look, he said, we overcomplicate things. He says, you want to understand the Constitution, read it. Read it. That's where you get an understanding of the Constitution, from its own words. They, they say what they mean, they mean what they say. They have a particular meaning that the founders had in mind, and that's the meaning that we have to get from it when we read it.
And then he said, we justices, especially if we are trying to foster a particular policy agenda or political agenda, which is not supposed to be our role. We know, of course, that courts have become activists. They've become creators of public policy, which they're not meant to be. They're meant to be resolvers of dispute based on laws that are already written and the Constitution that is already written. But he said, you know, if we wanted to uh, advance particular policies of our own, we create words that nobody understands, that there's no time-tested, community-accepted meaning for, but rather is new to the people, is obscure to the people, but if we pronounce it as some kind of matter of judicial weight and interpretation, well then the problem with that for the people is that we can make those words mean whatever we want them to mean. We can insert into those words or we can justify by those words whatever kind of conclusion we want to come to. And we're confusing the people. We're letting that happen by confusing the people with terminology they had never heard of before. Now, the beautiful thing about the, the Christian faith is that it is open to all. Jesus proclaimed it openly to all the world. And there is no book of the Bible that any of our church leaders have that all the rest of us don't have. There's no chapter of the catechism that some of our church leaders have or some of our church members have that the rest of us don't. The entirety of the message of the faith has been entirely proclaimed to everyone. And relevant to something I was saying before, the process of passing on the faith includes making sure that it is the entirety that we are passing along. Again, not underestimating the ability or willingness of the people to receive it and be challenged by it and grow from it, not losing confidence in the word itself to help them to grow and to make them change and not shrinking back from the pushback we might get. Again, if we're trying to please and making, trying to make sure we don't offend anybody, our words are going to be very, very, very unclear out of, because of fear. But because the faith has been openly revealed to us from the beginning and reflected on by the community over the centuries with the, with the proper role of theology in that process, and the pastoral experience of the church. We have developed a language. We have developed a terminology. We have our creed. We have our catechism. And we have the sensus fidelium. We have the sense of the faithful who are living out the faith every day and have a pretty good taste, even though they might not have the theological sophistication that we have. They don't need it. They've got a taste for the faith. And just like, you know, uh, uh, people uh, have a taste for, for good food, and especially if it's a, a favorite food of theirs that they have often, people can tell the tale. You can taste a good wine versus one that's not so good. You, you have a taste for the faith. When you're filled with the Spirit, when you're living that faith, when you've, when you've spent decades of your life trying to be faithful to it and pass it along to others. So we want to help our people think clearly about the faith in a time of confusion 
let's use the language of the faith. Now, just as Thomas was giving an example of, wow, substantive due process. Now, that's an important judicial term. But he said, hey, you know, we really don't, we don't really know what it means. We justices disagree among ourselves. We've been using the term for decades and we still, who knows? That's a danger. Because then you can kind of slip in whatever you want it to mean in a particular application. Isn't that a danger that we're facing right now in the church? People come to us and say, well, what, what is this synod that's coming up in October? The synod on synodality. Now, I would submit to you, brothers and sisters, and I know the word synod has been around for a long time, but it's not in the common vocabulary of the faithful. It's simply not. Eucharist is. Cross, redemption, forgiveness, heaven, hell, purgatory, faith, hope, love. These are the words of the faithful. These are the words of the faith. These are words that have distinct and long-standing meaning in our community of faith. But synod? And synod on synodality? It's like, what, what are you talking about? And yes, explanations are given, but, given, but the explanations are given about substantive due process, too. And people come away confused. People come away confused. If there's something legitimate that we're trying to accomplish, there's a place, there's a place for the fancy language. But in guiding our people, let's use the common language of the faith. Now you look at, the, let's, take, let's continue on this path of the, the Synod of Bishops. There have been many synods uh, over the last five decades, right? Six decades or so. And um, I want to give you the, the I want to read here some of the names of some of the previous synods. And you tell me if this is language that the vast majority of the Catholic faithful sitting in the pews are going to understand. They will not understand the term synod on synodality. But listen to these as titles of some of the past synods. Preserving and strengthening the Catholic faith. The ministerial priesthood and justice in the world. The Christian family. Penance and reconciliation. The vocation of the lay faithful in the church and the world. The formation of priests. The bishop, servant of the gospel of Jesus Christ for the hope of the world. These are all titles of past synods. The Eucharist. The word of God. The new evangelization. The vocation and mission of the family. Young people. Faith and vocational discernment. People are going to understand what these synods are all about. Synod on solidarity? Not so much. Not so much. We've got to be clear. The danger in using terminology that is unfamiliar to the faithful is that the faithful, first of all, can be misled into thinking that something is changing or that something is good which is not actually good or come away wondering if the things that they've always believed are in fact still the case we cannot as ministers 
of the gospel. Have people who encounter us and our message walk away scratching their heads. We can't be planting question marks in their minds and souls. We've got to be planting exclamation points. People should never come away from us or from a talk we've given or a sermon we've preached scratching their heads and wondering whether the things they've always believed are actually true. They've got to come away from us jumping with eagerness, confidence, and joy that the faith that they have always been raised in and learned, that, that they have made sacrifices to practice for decades in their lives, is true and vibrant and more clear than ever before. And because of that clarity, they're going to have more confidence in that faith. They're going to live it more generously and they're going to spread it and proclaim it to others more vigorously. That's got to be the result of their encounter with us. When it comes to that issue that this ministry is based around, the issue of abortion, let me renew my encouragement to you to speak plainly, to speak clearly. If what you mean to say is that abortion is the killing of children, then say it with deep compassion, with an equally clear message that no abortion is necessary because we are here to help people find good alternatives to abortion. If we're trying to convey that we have compassion for people who've had abortions, then let's just say that. We don't convey that we have compassion for people uh, who've had abortions if we never talk about it. They'll never know we have compassion if we're silent. But if we just come out and say what it is that we're trying to convey, that we have the greatest compassion for those that have had abortions, that we want them to come and be forgiven, that we are here for them and not against them, and that we do not judge them, but rather welcome them back. This is the kind of clear language that people need to hear. People will sometimes come to me and say, this religious leader or that religious leader said this, I'm confused, I don't know what it means. And here, is how I've given them guidance. I've said, look, it's okay to be confused about something that a religious leader said. But you never need to be confused about what the faith says. Keep your eyes fixed. Keep your mind focused. Keep your heart rooted in six simple words. What the church has always taught. You want to make it clear to people what the faith is? Quote the faith. Quote Jesus more than any other religious leader. Quote the Bible more than any other religious documents. Use the words that have always been used to convey the faith that has always been true. Focus on what the church has always taught. Because what the church has always taught is what will always be taught, what will always be true. What the church has always taught is what the sensus fidelium, what that taste that people have for the faith, 
is going to reflect and is going to be rooted in. It's going to therefore make their encounter with us, their listening to us, confirm them rather than confuse them. And ultimately that is rooted in one other simple point. And I referred to it briefly in the prayer. It's not that we master the Word. It's that the Word masters us. And that it is a teaching that, as Jesus himself said in the Gospel of John, is not our own. Jesus himself said, my teaching is not my own. And later in the Gospel of John, he said of the Holy Spirit, he will teach you what he receives from me. He will not speak on his own. So imagine this, imagine, it's, it's the truth that's been proclaimed to us that the second and the third person of the Blessed Trinity do not teach on their own, but teach what they have received. How much more is that true of us? Of us, who whether it's as parents teaching the faith to our child or just members of the church faithfully encouraging others in that same faith, whatever it is. You and I have a teaching that has been entrusted to us, and it's not our own. The Pope himself is the vicar of Christ. That's a referential term. Jesus said, call no one on earth your teacher. You have one teacher, the Christ. What, he's, what he means to say there, what he's obviously saying, is that it is Christ's teaching that is the norm and standard for all the other teachings and that any teacher of the faith must be reflecting that teaching of Christ, which is not obscure, which doesn't come to us in all kinds of unfamiliar, confusing terminology, and which does not change. We change in our de the deepening understanding we have of it, application to different changed circumstances of history. History changes. The Word doesn't change. But our teaching is not our own. Not our own opinion. It's not up to us to edit or delete the Word of God. And that should give us both the humility of making sure we're being faithful to that Word and also the confidence, as we said before, that that Word will indeed accomplish the purpose for which it is sent. It will indeed stir our people to Repentance, conversion, and life, it will indeed console the sorrowing. It will save lives. It will transform our world from a culture of death into a culture of life. I hope this, these reflections have been helpful for you. Let's proclaim and teach the faith clearly to our people because these are confusing times. There's division. In the nation, there's division in the church. Don't be concerned about the fact that there's division. Let's be concerned about one thing, that we are always on the right side of that division. Let's pray now as Jesus taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. We pray to our Heavenly Mother, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. 
Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. I want to thank you for joining us. Those of you who are clergy, I want you to be assured of the prayers of everyone else who's watching and everyone here at our Priest for Life ministry. And I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, to stay connected with our Good Shepherd seminars. It's not only directly for the clergy, it's also for all of us who want to encourage our clergy in their sacred calling. And when it comes to pro-life, remember what Dr. Bernard Nathanson, who founded the abortion movement in America and whom I knew, what he said about the role of the clergy when he spoke about what he and his colleagues did to launch this destructive abortion industry from which he, thank God, repented. He looked at us and he said, we would have never gotten away with what we did if you, the clergy, had been united, purposeful, and strong. Let's take that as a rallying cry to become more united, purposeful, and strong. And that's the purpose of our Good Shepherd seminars. Go to thegoodshepherdproject.com, thegoodshepherdproject.com for ongoing information, for links to past classes, and for the schedule of those coming up in the future. God bless you all from all of us here at Priests for Life. This has been the End Abortion Podcast. To learn more, to help end abortion, and to connect with us on social media, visit endabortion.net.